straight out of Philly, this is the Reluctant Theologian Podcast. I am your host, Dr. R.T. Mullins from the University of Lucerne. So Thomas J. Ord, he's a prolific writer, and he's got very provocative things to say about the nature of God, love, and creation. But not everyone loves what Tom Ord is up to. In today's episode, I have on Brian Orr to offer a classical theistic critique of Tom's doctrine of God. We discuss classical theism, divine power, love, creation ex nihilo, and so much more. If you'd like to support the show, you can donate money to my Patreon account or my Ko-fi account. Any donation amount helps me out in so many ways. I really appreciate all of the support that people have already offered. If you have questions or topics that you'd like to hear on the show, you can send me a message at rtmullins.com. Ready or not, here's Brian and I chatting about God. Enjoy. I recently had on Thomas J. Ord to talk about his rejection of classical theism, uh, Augustine's understanding of divine love, and then he wants to give his own alternative to, uh, to Augustine's understanding of love. And so Tom and I, like, we're friends, and I'm worried I'm just being a little bit too friendly towards Tom. So I need someone to come on the show and criticize Tom for a bit. So I've got Brian J. Orr, not Ord, but Brian J. Orr here, and he's got a new book out offering a classical theistic response to, to Tom's relational theism or his panentheism. So let's just get into it. So let's just start by defining some terms. So give me the, the, the basics, the bare bones of classical theism. All right, so the, the bare bones, we say that, that God is ase. He's uh, simple, transcendent, all the omni attributes, you know, his power, his knowledge, uh, his presence, his love. We'd say he's immutable and passable and timelessly eternal. And ultimately, we'd say that he is the Lord of his creation, which he created from himself, which would be the doctrine of creative ex nihilo. So those are kind of the, the key distinctions of it. Obviously, there's some variations when it comes to uh, the eternality of God and that kind of thing. But that would be the, the, the basic stamp of classical theism. Mm-hmm. So... So this is going to be a classical response to Tom's relational theism. So we have to ask another big question um, related to Tom's like uh, panentheistic understanding of God and the world. So what are some of the big ideas there? All right. So the, the big ideas that I see in Ord's writing is that he sees that God and creation are interdependent on one another, which that really stems from that, that process, process background that he has. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ord says that love is the metaphysically uh, primary attribute in God. And then he offers what he calls a, a essential kenosis, which uh, it affirms involuntary div- divine self-limitation. That's kind of a mouthful. Right. But it means that God doesn't choose to limit his power or control over his creation. Rather, he lacks the ability or desire to even do so. Because he is by nature self-giving, he cannot exercise power that controls any part of his creation. Um, another one that uh, that God essentially lacks the power to control which also means he is not responsible for the evil deeds that creatures do. And from this, this is where Ord says he solved the problem of evil. Mm -hmm. He says that God simply can't. He can't stop it. And the last big idea is that um, Ord offers a a doctrine of creation he calls creatio ex creatione a natura amoris. Another mouthful. Which means that God always creates out of creation with a nature of love. And so within this, he says that God has been creating creatures from an everlasting chain consisting of creatures and universes. So those are kind of the big five ideas that I, that I kind of pulled out. Yeah. So we've got essential kenosis. We've got, which was, yeah, yeah well, there's a lot wrapped up there. And then we've got um, uh, some of these different process ideas about God not being controlling. 
uh, and then love being a primary attribute. Okay, so this is so this, yeah. So you put a lot on the table here for us. So so Ord, he's got several different controversial ideas. So let's look at a few of them. So to start us off, Ord says that God must create a universe of some sort, and God is always creating. So like Tom is very clear that this entails a denial of creation out of nothing. So how do you, how do you think he goes about justifying this? Well, he justifies his claim based on his understanding of God's love. That because he's essentially loving, he necessarily relates to a creation. He must have a creation to relate with. So while he finds the Bible does not teach uh, creatus nihilo, he also sees that, that it's unloving and arbitrary because God could just have easily not created us. So, But I, I think that's the, the latter claim is ultimately why he holds it. He rejects ex nihilo because, again, it just shows that God could easily not love us. And therefore, we as Christians don't have any justification to say that God always loves us. Because obviously, if he had created us, he could you know, choose not to. Therefore, he could love us and then not love us. He must have always had a creation to relate with and love. Right. So I want to make sure I'm following this. So one, he's like, I just don't find it in scripture. And then two, it seems mm-hmm. like it conflicts with my understanding of God being essentially loving. Because if, if I could choose to go, yeah, I don't really care. I'm not, I don't really love you. Then how are you really essentially loving? Like that's, that's the idea. Yes. Yep. Okay. So now, now, now let's get to the, some, some crit- criticism here. So, cause you're not a big fan of this sort of claim. So, so you want creation <laughs> out of nothing. Uh, cause, cause you're a nihilist, you know, so you like, you, you like, you want to believe in nothing. Right. Um, so, <laughs> so how, how are you going to respond to, uh, like to, to Ord's object, like rejections of creation ex nihilo? Yeah, I think he's misguided. And as far as how he, the interpretation or understanding of ex nihilo, it's not really in line with the historic tradition of the Christian faith. Um, from what I've read, he, and he understands that create ex nihilo implies that, God created from nothing as if, as if nothing was a, a metaphysical entity of non-existence, right? Matter, matter does not come into being from nothing. Rather, it comes into being from nothing other than God, which is what we would say. So uh, I don't think that out of this hat of nothing, God pulls, pulls something out of it. Really, We'd say that there's nothing else that God creates what he creates, but from and through himself. And that's kind of an important distinction to make. And as I mentioned, he, he rejects it because there is no explicit statement that says that God creates from nothing, right? It's really, it's a, a theological doctrine that we see built upon a lot of foundational texts like John 1, 1 through 1, 3, Hebrews 11, 3, even Genesis 1. And so I, I say that his rejection of it for not seeing any explicit text, I refer to as basically being kind of a biblicist perspective. I know you've asked that question where, for, for example, we have the doctrine of the Trinity based upon a set of texts throughout the Bible that we have that that forces us, in a sense, to say that God is triune. And I think it's the kind of the same with the doctrine of creatio ex nihilo. As to his doctrine of creation, I think it's not justifiable from the scriptures. I, I, again, it really goes back to a his view of God's love is what he uses to justify it. And, I, and I, in a sense, I, I applaud him. He's trying to be consistent, and I, I get what he says. So, but a challenge I have, I want to push back on that as far as the his understanding of of that doctrine is that he says that on the one hand he says that God initially created and then continues to create from what he previously created, but on the other hand he says there was no first moment when God created. So, in his demand that God must have a creation to relate with making God creational, I'm sorry, relational, excuse mm-hmm. me, 
thus making God dependent on creation to be who he is, I think it really blurs that line because, again, he says there was no point of creation, but then there was. Then we have to ask ourselves, what is creation? Is it divine? Is it is it eternal? Is it contingent? Is God contingent? I mean, I think there again, there's that, that blurring the line that I think is uh, problematic. I also would say what is most concerning is that in order positing that God needs creation or a creation to relate with, to make him relational, that challenges the historic Christian understanding that God's relationality stems from the Trinitarian relations, the, the NSA, who, who God is in his essence. Mm-hmm. And so if we follow Orr's train of thought, there would be no need for God to be triune since his relationality is grounded in his eternal relation to a creation, right? And so God's, but we'd say God's triunity is grounded in his relationality in the triune relations. I'm not saying um, that it, it negates Trinitarianism altogether, sure. but it really kind of challenges that challenges that perspective. And so what happens now, when I think of the apologetic discourse, it makes us in a sense um, that one would be philosophically justified of believing in a monadic God as Judaism, Islam, and the Jehovah's Witnesses as a personal being, right? Because mm-hmm. we can say that God is monadic, but what makes him relational is having a creation. And that's that's one of the, the defining distinctions between Christian theism and the other ones that I, that I named. Yeah, no, I, I've, I've teased him a little bit about this before, um, because there's this Islamic thinker that I find really fascinating. His name is Ibn Taymiyyah, and he has a very similar kind of view uh, to, to Ord on uh, with regards to creation, like like God's uh, temporal, God's uh, like essentially creating. He's always creating something of some sort, uh, and, and and so so like so in your mind, you'd be saying, right, that's not really surprising because Ord's not really relying enough on the relational resources we should get from the Trinity. So it should be unsurprising yes. that we'd see some similarities with a Unitarian understanding of God. Is that like? Would, do you think that's fair? Yes, yes for sure. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's get in some other stuff here. So. There's a couple things we've touched on, um, and I want to go a little bit deeper. So a lot of a lot of Ord's theology, it's centering around his conception of divine love. So just tell me, like, what exactly is Tom's understanding of divine love? Well, he offers the definition quite often in his writings, but basically it says that to love is to act intentionally in sympathetic or empathetic response to God and others to promote overall well-being. And so... This, this kind of definition of love applies to God and to creatures, so it encompasses both. But again, ultimately, Ord would say that God is uncontrollingly loving, right? So he doesn't have the capacity to coerce anyone. Rather, God is, uh, has given every creative thing, animate or inanimate, free agency. And then ultimately, that because Ord says love necessitates choice, it means that God can only lure, influence, persuade, or compel creatures to choose what is most loving? That's the kind of real driving force that we see throughout his writings. Yeah. So, so if I'm essentially loving on this view, I have to give creatures existence and I have to give them autonomy. And that explains why I can't control them. Yeah. And I, and I find Ord's approach consistent in his, in his realm, if you will, because that's where he really breaks away from traditional open theism. Mm-hmm. He says that the traditional open theists like Pinnock and Sanders and those guys, they say that God has this kind of on and off switch where he can choose to be this way or not. And Ord's like, no, if we're going to say that, that God is loving and everybody's completely free, he, he has to be essentially essentially that way. He can't just turn it on and off because now you get you have a God that could arbitrarily, in Ord's mind, I would think, mm-hmm. 
you know, control creation or not. Right. And that's not what he sees. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Cause and that's, cause that's a big part of his theodicy too, right. Is, is to be able to go, look, if you're an open theist, you can't really explain the problem of evil, but I can, aha, God can't yes. like, do yes. things. Um, but, but you know, but like, I've got an explanation now. So yeah. So, so that's, that's his view of love. Now tell me like, what's, what's your preferred view on divine love? Yeah. So I want to start off, start off by saying that, you know, God loves creatures. Uh, scripture says also that we love God because he loved us first. And I believe that there's very facets to, to God's love in the Bible. Um, I believe that God has a specific love for those who in Ephesians 1, 4 says he chose from before the foundation of the world, right? To make them holy and blameless. And while we're sinners, Christ died for us. And so God's love is in a sense creative. And that is through the work of the spirit that he, he pours his love into our hearts, as Romans 5 says, to then that we can now then love righteously and sacrificially, and a love that will lead us to die for our enemies as and those who hate us. For That's what God's love will do for us. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that we start off by seeing that God's love is primarily for his son, and then he adopts a people for himself, and he places that love on creatures. And um, ultimately, God's love also entails that he will bring judgment against those that are wicked and ungodly, those who have persecuted and killed his children. So love has an element of of uh, satisfying God's justice, in a sense, for, 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 for the wrong that the world has fallen into. But he also says he's going to fulfill his purposes to those that he has sealed by his spirit to renew all things, remove sin, suffering and sickness in the new heavens and the new earth. And I think that's kind of the full orb view that I see throughout uh, through the Bible. So... I want to make sure I'm following this. So, so we've got like this nice, neat definition from from Ord, and then and then you're going to want to say, like, like it's like God's got some sort of self love or love between the divine persons, and that trickles down towards love for creatures. And then you're wanting to also say it's got to be consistent with some other divine attributes too, because it's not like love's the only it's the only thing driving the, uh, the car here. Like there's like there's justice, yeah. and so it's got to be consistent with that. Do, it, like, yeah. what, so what exactly? Maybe I missed this. Like. What exactly is the definition of love on this account, though? So, like, as I understand, you want to bring in the other divine attributes. That makes perfect sense to me. Um, but, like, what exactly is the, the definition? Yeah, you know, that's a good question because that's one thing I push back with where, you know, Ord has this definition that he formulates, mm-hmm. but it's really, in a sense, um, it, it's not pervasive enough. And that's when you actually look at those that have, have really spent time studying and writing on the, on the doctrine of God's love, they all come up and say you can't have a monolithic definition. There's so many facets to it, so that's why there has to be pieces you explain. Is that what I see in Ord's work, which I, I really criticize, is that he kind of I think makes a, a philosophically contrived definition, and then what happens is he ultimately overlooks a lot of various passages that don't fit with that. They don't fit with that by any means. So I mean, kind of what, what I gave you, Ryan. I don't think I can say I can make it into a mm, one sentence. Sure. There's there's many elements to it, and so when you read various works, they all kind of same things like Vincent Brumer. Uh, Don Carson, John Peckham, right? They, I mean, John Peckham's dissertation was like 900 pages on this. I mean, <laughs> there's a lot to say. There's a lot to say. So I think it's, I think Ord's effort is very truncated and it ultimately, I, I think, fails in the end because it does not, it does not t- can take all the many facets into consideration like it should. So, and so in your mind, one reason to favor your view over, over Tom's is, that yours is trying to capture a whole lot of different things that are going on in scripture. Whereas, whereas you think uh, Tom's view is just, it's not doing that. It's not sufficient. Yeah. It's not like, for example, um, you know, he, Ord says he follows the Hesed tradition, which means, you know, God has a, 
I love that to promote overall overall well-being. He kind of uses that phrase a lot, right? Mm-hmm. And so he cites passages that support this tradition, but he misses the kind of the wider semantic range, if you will, of the text where God emphasizes his covenantal love to his people. And so one one very famous psalm is Psalm 136, which is called the Hesed Psalm. Excuse me. In each line of this psalm, we see an act of devotion to Israel, followed by the phrase, his love endures forever. Mm-hmm. Right? And in this psalm, God expresses his said love to Israel, and he says he does this by striking down the firstborn of Egypt, by sweeping Pharaoh and his army into the sea and slaughtering kings, right? Now, Ord wouldn't say that's loving, right? Right. But, but so it looks like that God is ultimately selective in whom he desires to promote this well-being for. He didn't promote well-being for the Egyptians or for these kings, right? He did it for Israel. So, again, I don't think, you know, Ord even really, you know, provides a consistent basis to to establish his said love by, by you know, selectively passing up on these passages. Mm-hmm. No, I think that's an interesting criticism because that's, I mean, that's the standard thing we do in systematic theology, right, is to say, look, my view can capture more biblical passages than yours can, so I can explain more of the data than you can. So is that, do you think that's like like a big reason ultimately to favor your view instead of his? Is this kind of strategy? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. Okay, so is there any other reason you would, you'd want to give for why we should favor your view instead of his? I think mine is more grounded to the text. Mm-hmm. I, that's that's all things that we're supposed to be people of the book, right? right so sure. yeah. we can't just kind of formulate a doctrine of love that we think through experience. we got to say, this is the scriptural data. How do we make this, in a sense, kind of fit? And how do we work this into our theology by taking kind of everything into account as best as we can in a most coherent and cohesive fashion? And we had to ultimately go where the text goes, right? That's right. what we try to do. Yeah. No, no, that's fair. I mean, yeah, that's that that's supposed to be the goal of systematic theology is to try to do these sort of things. So I want to get in with uh, to one more topic with you today. So this is divine power. So so Ord's, he wants to reject divine omnipotence. And he actually has a new book manuscript that he's working on that's really explicit, like uh, uh, where he wants to get rid of this. Uh, and so I looked it over the other day. So he thinks that omnipotence is going to have some really serious problems. So he rejects the traditional view of God because he thinks it makes God controlling. And we've talked a little bit about that already. And, so, and, and there's a sense in which I can say I, I, I can see where he's coming from. So consider the classical doctrine of universal divine causality. So this doctrine says that God is the direct and immediate cause of everything with ontological existence. So there's been a couple of recent books on this um, and some papers by like uh, W. Matthews Grant and Catherine Rogers. So this doctrine is starting to make a bit of a comeback. So the idea here is that that God directly causes you to exist. He directly causes your thoughts, your beliefs, your actions. God causes you to act, and he causes your act to be efficacious. Uh, unless you're John Dunn Scotus, then he's going to say he causes your, uh, the effects to, to come about. So there's some new, a little bit of nuance every now and then. But like, when I think in terms of like, Western history, this has been like, controversial. Uh, so, for example, in Islamic traditions, various philosophers and theologians thought that this entailed something called occasionalism, uh, which is where God's the only agent. He's the only one who has any power. And so it seems to me that like that Tom Ward's going to have similar kind of worries. He's going to like so like, but you, but you're going to say no, 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 no. Like that's not right. Like like you don't think the traditional view of divine power and action actually entails some sort of like loss of creaturely power and freedom. So tell me like what you're thinking here. Like how do you how do you avoid the sort of loss of creaturely power? Yeah. So so firstly, I yeah, don't hold any kind of occasionalism by any means, but. Um, 
I, again, I think we have a plethora of biblical texts that show that God's involvement is the decisive factor in creaturely free choices, right? So the issue, as you note in your question, as I see it, I don't think it's not a problem for the biblical writers. In fact, the biblical authors make a point to tell the reader when God was working in the actions of human character. Like, for example, the story of Joseph. Mm-hmm. Potiphar saw the working of God in his life, making him successful in what he's doing. And the author is trying to tell us that. Like, if, if you were just there seeing things happen, we wouldn't know that. But the author is telling us that these things are happening for Joseph, right? Because God's favor is upon him. He's working in through uh, what Joseph's doing, making him successful. And so it shows God's intentionality to carry out his purposes in creation and the flow of redemptive history. So divine action within creatural action seemed to be understood as the norm, not the exception, right? That's just kind of, you see it woven throughout creaturely mm-hmm. action. Now, there's a specific list of passages that I call breaking point texts. Some of them I go through in my book. I call them that because when I've reviewed much of the literature from, you know, Arminians and open theists and stuff, they, they, they tend to avoid these passages. They don't engage with them at all, right? And that's why I call them their kind of breaking point because if they really, I think, affirm what they say surface level, the implications are disastrous for their understanding of God's unilateral working and, and how that works with free choices. Now, Orr does try to engage with one of them, uh, Genesis 50, verse 20. He's got a, his book, God Can't, he kind of really tries to flesh that out. Uh, but ultimately, you know, he, he concludes saying that God squeezes what he can out of people to mm-hmm. do what he kind of wants, hopefully. But again, if, if he can't, in a sense, have any interaction with his creation, what is the squeezing doing? It, you know, how does he squeeze anything if he can't actually impact physical bodies? He actually ends up saying later on. So a lot of challenges there. But to get back to your question about how do I avoid a loss of creaturely power and freedom, I see that the creature only does what he wants to do, right? It's probably a very kind of Edwardsian kind of approach to it. Like you and I, when we sin, I never feel forced to sin against my will or do anything against my will. If I carry out a sinful action... However, I'd say it comes to pass according to the will of God. And I'd say according to God's divine wisdom and foreknowledge, he preferred that my sinful action comes to pass. Whereas on the, on the creaturely side, it came to pass because I wanted to do it, right? Mm-hmm. And that goes for all decisions we make. Because as Scripture says, God upholds things by the power of his word, and in him we live and move and have our being. Then God's will establishes my freedom to carry out the choices and actions I desire to make. Now, God cannot commit evil, but those who can, such as you or I, as creatures and fallen angels, he upholds us and sustains our being to do the evil, but not the evil itself. Again, the evil act can only occur if God has determined that it occur with the evil act occurring by the desire and want of the creature, not because the creature had to commit the evil act, as fatalism would have it, mm-hmm. but rather because the creature wanted to, right? So, um, again, I would say that all that the evil occurs... In that manner, the evil occurrence has a good purpose because it came to pass according to the good will of God. And an example would be Acts 4, 27 and 28, right? The Lord handing over the sinless Son of God for the crucifixion and the saving of the world, right? So I think overall scripture best supports this view. It doesn't flatten out the text as I think Ord and, and many as camp will do in order to kind of swing the vote in their favor. But at the end of the day, Ryan, we know that this is that way. And we ultimately lean on God's understanding, not our own. Okay, so wanna, so I want to make sure I'm getting this here. So your your big strategy basically is to say, look, um, when we're looking at some of these different texts, uh, that it, it really does seem like God is causing 
uh, all these different things. And the Bible has no problem with that uh, in terms of human freedom. Like there's, there's not a conflict there uh, in the biblical text. So if we're trying to be good systematic theologians, well, maybe we shouldn't have a problem with it either. Uh, and, and so you started to say something about you think Ord's view flattens out the text. So could you, could you like maybe say a bit more about that? So when we look at what the scriptures say about this, we say that we see that, that, that people, creatures that we see in the Bible do things that they want to do. Right. And so, for example, I was, I was talking about evil that we see that um, that the evil acts that occur in the world and the Bible, and that kind of thing. Uh, God, they only can occur if God is determined that they occur. Now, it doesn't mean that God is the, the, the primary agent doing the evil action. Right. We would never say that. And so but that the creature that does the does the evil act, he's doing it by his own desire. Not out of like a fatalistic where he had to commit the evil, but out of a preference to want to do that, right? So, so but the thing is that because the 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 evil action does occur by the will of God, in that way, we'd say that the evil occurrence has a good purpose because it came to pass according to the good will of God. We say God is God is good in all that He is and does. There's no nothing we would ever want to you know put a blemish on God that way. So if if God in a sense is sovereign over His creation and He ordains an evil act to happen that's a good in itself and so i would say ultimately the that the pinnacle the pinnacle passage on that is acts 4 27 to 28 about the son of god being delivered over according to the foreknowledge and will of god right so that's where i kind of think those those two things kind of intersect and that's not a that's not a flattening out of the passage as i i do see in, in a lot of open theism literature it's kind of saying okay it's trying to say that the text guides us and drives us so how can we now uh, fit these views in that passage while taking both sides into account as consistently as possible. And I think again, what I, what I've offered does that more consistently than what Ord offers. Mm-hmm. But also yeah. we know you're a philosopher, mm-hmm. the sidewalk at some point, right? Yeah. We, we, that's where it goes. And so we want to make the best sense, the best case. And also we want to have good plausibility in what we're saying about the Bible and who God is. Right. Because in my mind, when when I talk to my students, one of the things I really try to push on them is like, you can't just say whatever like crazy nuts thing you want to say to try to be like, oh, well, here's a way to like remove some logical contradictions and, and stuff. I'm like, the goal is to make Christianity actually like plausible, uh, like possibly yeah. true and to persuade people of its truth. If I just have to say all sorts of crazy stuff just to be like, I remove some contradictions. I, I don't know what game I'm playing here. So, yeah, you're right. The sidewalk has to end somewhere. Um, so, yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. So let's look at one final thing here. So, because, like, you and I both know, like, like Tom's not going to be persuaded by what you just said. Um, but there might be people listening who are they're, they're kind of on the fence, you know. And that's why we have uh, – why I try to get episodes like this where I get, you know, different views here. So, so you know, your audience right now is, is these people who are on the fence. They don't, they don't know what they want to do. They want to go with you. They want to go with Tom. So let's look at an objection to to Tom's view on divine power. So so he's going to say that God's uh, loving power is uncontrolling. We talked a little bit about that. Uh, and he's going to say God can only act by persuasion. God can try to woo us, but he can never control us. So like, what do you, what, what exactly do you make of this? Like, what is your objection to that account of divine power? Well, primarily, I think it's inconsistent with what the scriptures teach. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think part of it too is that He's kind of framing his argument, I think, on, on what he, I think, is a misconception of a classical view of divine power, which he defines as coercive power, mm-hmm. right? And he says that, that one who's coerced loses all capacity for causation, uh, self-organization, agency, or free will. 
Now, here's the thing. He says, nowhere in Scripture do we see a passage like that. And I agree. We don't. I mean, there's maybe one passage where God uh, put David's, or sorry, Saul's army kind of to sleep while he was having David pass through, right? That's oh, yeah. I would say that that kind of would, would happen, right? But otherwise, we agree on that. I completely agree on that. Um, but the thing is, the, the problem is that coercive power isn't the same as unilateral determination. Coercion occurs in the, in the context of deceitful intentions on the part of the one acting coercively. So if, we, if I held to coercion, it would implicate God as a villainous actor in his actions. And so I definitely don't want to go to that coercive way, right? But rather what we do see in the text is, as I said, God working in and through the wills of creatures, where the creature does what he wants, right? But ultimately, this is God's, God's purposes. Now, another challenge I have, or another issue I have with Orr is that he's limiting himself, or rather God's self, to a view of divine power that exclusively only persuades creatures. It's, it's too, too restrictive. Mm-hmm. Again, Scripture doesn't support that view. Uh, and I give some examples in my book, uh, for example, of, of God striking down people. Right? We, we don't see that God had to persuade people to accept being struck down by God. Right. Uh, he didn't woo. Them, he didn't woo them to be struck down. He didn't try to lure them over. Right. For example, in First Samuel two twenty five, about Eli's wicked sons that that wouldn't listen to his father's rebuking. Why? Because the Lord intended to kill them. Right. The Lord's will was for them to to be killed, and so that was the decisive factor, not them not listening to their father. Again, the, he didn't have to go to them and say, "Look, I, I want to kill you. I want you to come to my side so I can do that." He didn't lure them. He didn't set a trap. It was by his divine prerogative to do so. Or it says that divine power involves God's persuasion and exercise of indirect bodily impact without unilateral determination. Again, it's a very restrictive claim that cannot be exclusively substantiated in Scripture. Because one question I ask in my book, I say, when one reads passages pertaining to God's action with towards creation, is Orr's view of God's power a naturally derived assumption from the text? And what I mean by naturally, I mean, is this the general sense reading of the text? So, for example, I'll go to 1 Samuel 25, 38. It says, quote, about 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal dead, period, close quote. Right. Now, in reading this text in the context, is it a more natural or general sense reading to think that God directly acted and struck Nabal dead, or is it a more natural or general sense reading of the Bible to think that God used persuasive power to indirectly move another physical body to bring about Nabal's death? I, I don't think it is. Um, one last passage, a little bit even even more acute. Second Samuel 6-7 says, Then the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah, and God struck him dead on the spot for his irreverence, and he died there next to the ark of God. I would say a general sense reading would see that God acted directly on a physical creature by striking him dead. But a general sense reading may determine that God struck down someone indirectly, as Ord says, by means of another, and there's various passages for that. But this is where a classical view, I'll say, has greater consistency in that it understands that God directly and indirectly acts in and with his creation. So Ord's kind of metaphysic or his process view, it delimits what God can do regardless of a general sense reading of the text. And then lastly, I want to talk about, um, you know, Ord says that that a God involved with evil in any way is not worthy of worship, mm-hmm. right? And I would agree, right? he's not. But again, it's a very attenuated claim. And scripture, I think, again, shows otherwise in going back to the arrested crucifixion of Christ. 
He rejects the view that Jesus' crucifixion was determined by from eternity to past, according to Thomas' view, that's fine. And according to his view of the future, God cannot guarantee a particular outcome. Rather, it would be a divine guess at best, I would, I would think. Um, I'm not quoting him there, but that's what sure, I, would, sure. I would think. Um, but again, I don't think the scripture suggests that. Um, especially the Gospel of John, he says over and over again that Jesus' arrest did not happen because his hour had not come. Right? You see that quite, quite a bit. And then when it finally come, came, excuse me, Scripture says that Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the Jews, had done whatever the Lord's hand and his plan had predestined to take place. Now, if that's the case, and then Ord says a God worthy of our worship cannot be someone who causes, supports, or allows genuine evil, end quote. Mm -hmm. If you take that biblical text for what it plainly says, that Jesus was delivered up to be crucified, According to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, then I see it's an inescapable conclusion that God, to use Ord's words, causes, supports, or allows evil in some manner. Mm-hmm. And that's where God stands behind this evil, right, according to his wisdom that he ordains to come to pass. The thing is, did Christ do anything to deserve evil? No. Was it evil actions? Yes. Did God plan this? Yes. So, you have to say that God is behind evil in some way that we have to ultimately, you know, again, deal with that tension. And I yeah. think, or just completely sidesteps it. Now, I think, I think that's an interesting point because I mean, there are these, okay. When I look at all the different models of God, they all have to account for the role uh, of God in evil. God's responsible for evil in some sense, uh, in the very least that he's created creatures who are capable of doing evil and that he, he knows there's a high probability or that it's inevitable that they're going to do evil. So, so that's, yeah, that's something I, I worry I've had as well with his views to go, hang on. I can see how, you know, like if you're, if you're a Calvinist or something, you, you might be able to give some kind of objections against Calvinism to say, you've got God's much more hands-on with evil, but how much does Ord's own view get God off the hook is, is a, is a question I have. And I don't know how to formulate the objection just right, but it seems like I, I want to say like God's still involved in some sense. Cause he's, He's, you know, he's given us uh, like all this power. He necessarily has given us all this power. He's creating us to do all these kind of things. Uh, and then we're in fact doing all sorts of stuff. Yeah, no, no. I, yeah, I, I, I see the point you're making. This is, this is it's, it's really good stuff. Um, but overall, though, Brian, thank you so much for being on the show today. This has been a really fascinating conversation. I'm really glad I can get uh, a lot of different views on this on this uh, on the show. So thank you for that. Thanks, Ryan. I appreciate it. And there you have it, another episode of the Reluctant Theologian Podcast. Stay tuned for more episodes on philosophical theology. 